the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing, Dave King engineering. Glad to have you with us. Coming up later in the program, Aaron Burke. He is a pastor of Radiant Church in Tampa Bay area. He's the author of his first book, Unfair Advantage, Seven Keys from the Life of Joseph, for transforming any obstacle into an opportunity. The book is published by Thomas Nelson, his first, again, unfair advantage. Coming up in the second hour of today's program, we'll also talk, talk about Miami's, or rather Maui's fires, uh, the burning uh, where the Hawaiian queen first brought Christianity to the island and much of what um, what happened in that area had to do with the gospel spreading to the Hawaiian islands. We'll talk more about that, what the church is doing in this area. Well, first to the headlines, Donald Trump and 18 other defendants have been indicted by a Georgia grand jury in connection with their alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election result uh, in the uh, Peach State. Uh, Trump is facing 13 felony charges, including conspiracy to commit forgery, filing false documents, solicitation of violation of oath by public uh, officer and violating the Georgia racketeering influenced and corruption organizations act or the RICO Act, most of the uh, analysis I'm hearing is about this uh, racketeer, uh, the RICO Act um, allegation, and that one being more questionable. But nonetheless, other defendants named in the 98-page indictment, which was unsealed Monday evening, include former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, several members of Trump's former legal team, Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, Jenna Ellis, and Sidney Powell, Additional Trump allies charged in connection with the Fulton County District Attorney uh, investigation includes pro-Trump lawyer Kenneth Chesbro, former Department of Justice official Jeffrey Clark, Trump campaign official Mike Roman, lawyer Robert Cheeley, former Georgia GOP chair and fake elector David Schaefer, fake elector Sean Still, Pastor Stephen Lee, Black Voices for Trump leader Harrison Floyd, publicist Travion Cudi, uh, lawyer Ray Smith and three officials connected to the Coffee County voting system breach, Kathy Latham, Scott Hall and Misty Hampton. It's quite a list. Uh, the indictment reads Trump and the other defendants charged in this indictment refused to accept that Trump lost and they knowingly and willfully joined a conspiracy to unlawfully change the outcome of the election in favor of Trump. Again, the indictment reads that conspiracy contained a common plan and purpose to commit two or more acts of racketeering activity in Fulton County, Georgia, elsewhere in the state of Georgia and in other states. All 19 of the defendants are facing racketeering charges. Now, prosecutors allege that individuals involved in this effort engaged in various related criminal activities, including but not limited to false statements and writings, impersonating a public officer, forgery, filing false documents, influencing witnesses, computer theft, computer trespass, computer invasion of privacy, conspiracy to defend, rather to defraud the state, acts of 
uh, involving theft and perjury. The indictment says 161 separate acts were undertaken to advance the criminal conspiracy. Well, the alleged criminal enterprise, in quotes, operated in Fulton County, Georgia, but also in other areas, including Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Washington, D.C., according to the indictment. Now, Willis, uh, the prosecutor, said during a press conference on Monday evening that the defendants will have until noon on Friday, the 25th of this month, to surrender. The district attorney said prosecutors plan to seek a trial date within six months. Willis's investigation began in early 2021. It centered on alleged efforts uh, from Trump and his allies to pressure election officials and to plan to put forward fake electors. The investigation was launched shortly after Trump called Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and pressured him to find the votes needed to flip the state in his favor. Trump said as recently as last week that it was a perfect phone call. Trump's campaign put out a statement calling Willis a rabid partisan shortly after the grand jury approved the indictment. The timing, the statement said, the timing of this latest coordinated strike by a biased prosecutor in an overwhelmingly Democrat jurisdiction not only betrays the trust of the American people, but also exposes true motivation driving their fabricated accusations. They could have brought this two and a half years ago. Yet they chose to do this for election interference reasons in the middle of President Trump's successful campaign. Uh, The statement went on. These activities by Democrat leaders constitute a grave threat to American democracy and are direct attempts to deprive the American people of their rightful choice to cast their vote for president. Call uh, if um, call it election interference or election manipulation. It is a dangerous effort by the ruling class to suppress the choice of the people. It's an un-American and wrong act, the campaign added. Well, a spokesperson for Clark, the former Department of Justice official charged in the indictment, said in a statement that the Fulton County District Attorney is exceeding her powers by inserting herself into the operations of the federal government to go after Jeff. On Sunday, CNN reported on uh, text messages and other communications obtained by prosecutors in Georgia's probe that purportedly connect members of the former president's legal team with a January 2021 voting systems breach. Well, we'll be hearing much more about that, but the uh, parties to the indictment will have to surrender by the 24th. It's a Friday of this month, and I'm certain we'll continue to uh, follow this developing story. Well, a key House committee released a 65-page manuscript on Monday to testify uh, of testimony by a former FBI supervisory special agent who said he encountered obstacles in leading an investigation of Hunter Biden. Um, the word restifying, I'm not familiar with, but restifying to committee investors, um, investigators behind closed doors on uh, the 17th. The former FBI agent provided detail about the December 2020 uh, event, a month after the last presidential election, when agents from both the FBI and the IRS planned to question President-elect Joe Biden's son in Los Angeles. Well, backing up what IRS whistleblower Gary Shapley previously uh, had told Congress, the unnamed former FBI agent who retired in June of 2020, said FBI headquarters uh, tipped off both Joe Biden's presidential transition team and the Secret Service about the pending interview cost um, and investigators, uh, the chance to question the younger Biden. 
And that's another ongoing investigation. Of course, uh, little, if any, of this has to do with the people's business. But nonetheless, that's what happens in Washington these days. We're going to take a quick break. Again, we'll continue to work our way through some of the day's headlines. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. The 2023 Pastor Appreciation Breakfast is set for Friday, October 6th. Mark your calendar at the Doubletree by Hilton downtown. This year's keynote speaker is musician Darren Mulligan of the band We Are Messengers. He's going to share his story, talk about his music ministry, and share a message that is sure to inspire. Morning worship will be led by Ben Fuller. October is Pastor Appreciation Month, and we want to honor all pastors, ministry leaders, and their spouses, plus other key staff members who serve with a delicious breakfast, fellowship, worship, and keynote speaker, Darren Mulligan. It's free to attend. Even parking is free, but space is limited. So go to kpdq.com and register today. We'd love to uh, to serve you, to bless you, and to offer some encouragement. Well, uh, congressionally approved aid to Ukraine has cost each U.S. household thus far hundreds of dollars, according to a Heritage Foundation budget expert, Richard Stern. The formal aid packages alone amount to a staggering $113 billion, roughly $900 per American household, and almost 12 times the spending cuts promised by House leadership in the annual spending bills. Hmm. Well, as with all new federal spending, This $113 billion spending spree was added to our national debt and will cost more than $300 in interest costs per household over the decade. Of course, we've given more than that, more aid than that, but haven't paid the bill on that yet. uh, Congress already has uh, green-lighted over $113 billion in aid and military assistance to support the Ukrainian government and allied nations since Russian President Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine in February of last year. As the war in Ukraine becomes a prolonged conflict, Americans are rightly growing skeptical of sending more taxpayer dollars and equipment from our depleted armory. Washington has failed to address their concerns, explains the national strategy in war or intact basic oversight for our aid, uh, Roberts went on to say, and uh, he uh, says that if Congress can't fix those fundamental issues, they have no business sending more money into the fog of war. Well, according to the Congressional Budget Office, the U.S. has about 127.9 million households during fiscal year 2022, which ended last September, making the estimated costs for the approved aid to Ukraine for American household of about eight hundred and eighty four dollars. President Biden's administration is preparing to ask Congress for supplemental funding for Ukraine. CNN is reporting after returning from uh, their August recess, some members of Congress want to provide more funding to Ukraine in a bill providing hurricane relief to Americans. Uh, But there are questions being raised about whether or not we're sacrificing our own readiness um, and cannibalizing that readiness for the sake of this ongoing conflict and question whether or not it could have been shortened by providing the appropriate munitions early on rather than just enough to get by, stretching this out quite uh, quite a bit longer. Former President uh, Trump told Fox News Digital his fourth indictment comes during a dark period for our country, but vowed to win the 2024 presidential election and make America great again. He is an optimist. Trump was indicted, as I mentioned earlier, for the fourth time on Monday night, this time out of Georgia, Nineteen people were indicted along with him. Trump and more than a dozen others were charged and 
I won't even bother to mention their names again. But the the former president believes he will not only um, win the nomination for the Republican Party, but that he will become president again. That's becoming a bit more murky murky when he has from four different jurisdictions, uh, these four indictments that he will be with many counts. He will be uh, giving answer to Georgia District Attorney Fannie Willis gave the former president and the 18 other individuals named in Monday's grand jury until the 25th of this month to surrender. She held a press conference after the Fulton County grand jury handed up charges. The district attorney gave Trump and the other 18 until the 25th to surrender to law enforcement. On Monday night during a press conference, she said she would like the trial to take place within six months. The 97-page indictment contains 41 felony counts against the former president and his 18 co-defendants and alleged that they unlawfully conspired and endeavored to conduct and participate in criminal enterprise in Fulton County. Meanwhile, uh, Fannie uh, Willis deflected uh, the Fulton County District Attorney uh, deflected when asked how a draft of the indictment leaked Monday prior to the grand jury voting to charge the former president and 18 others. On Monday afternoon, the Fulton County Court's um, website posted a document listing the same charges included in the indictment released late Monday night. The Office of the Fulton County Clerk or Superior and Magistrate Courts has learned of a fictitious document that has been circulated online and reported by various media outlets to the Fulton County Special Purpose Grand Jury, the court said in a statement Monday afternoon. While there have been no documents filed today regarding such, this was yesterday, all members of the media should be reminded that documents that do not bear an official case number, filing date, and the name of the clerk of the court in concert are not considered official filings and should not be treated as such. Well, Trump's attorney slammed the Fulton County District Attorney's Office on Monday afternoon. The attorneys charged that the Fulton County District Attorney's Office has once again shown that they have no respect for the integrity of the grand jury process. Finding and um, Little said, Findling and Little said, this was not a simple administrative mistake. A proposed indictment should only be in the hands of the district attorney's office, yet it somehow made its way to the clerk's office and was assigned a case number and a judge before the grand jury even deliberated. They added, this is emblematic of the persuasive and glaring constitutional violations which have plagued this case from its very inception. About 100 parents gathered outside a New Jersey courthouse on Tuesday as a judge considered whether to block three school districts from implementing a new policy that requires teachers to notify parents if their children request a change of gender identities. The policies at Middletown, Marlboro and Manapalan uh, English Town Regional School District were approved on the 20th of June. But less than a day later, New Jersey Attorney General Matt Platkin, he filed three emergency lawsuits on behalf of the governor and the administration in opposition to them. Well, inside the courthouse in Freehold on Tuesday, the court, uh, the state argued rather for the court to keep the current preliminary injunction on the policies in effect. There will be irreparable harm if the policy is implemented. Once a school outs a student to their parents, the harm is done. Now, the presumption is a parent who is informed will harm the child. It's irreversible, they went on to say. I heard one parent earlier in the day suggest that we never agreed to co-parent our children with the state. This is unacceptable. But the New Jersey Deputy Attorney General James Michael was convinced that this would do harm to students. But Marlboro School District lawyer Mark Zidomer, he argued that the parental notification is not discriminatory. I think that we all can see there is a constitutional right for a parent to oversee the upbringing of their own children. 
Uh, Judge David Bauman said at the uh, at one point in the proceedings before later dismissing the court and telling lawyers from both sides that he would give a written notice um, with an answer shortly. The parents have won. Hunter Biden's leading attorney has asked to withdraw from the case because uh, he could be called in as a witness in future of litigation involving the collapsed plea deal he brokered with the prosecutors. Lawyer Christopher Clark filed a motion with the Delaware judge who has presided over the case since the plea deal was announced. Based on recent developments, it is it appears that the negotiations and drafting of the plea agreement and diversion agreement will be contested. And Mark Clark's Mr. Clark is a a precipitate. Uh, Percipient witness to these issues, Hunter Biden's lawyer said in the filing obtained by CBS News. Under the witness advocate rule, it is uh, inadvisable for Mr. Clark to continue as uh, counsel in this case. Well, under the initial plea deal, Clark brokered with the U.S. attorney David Weiss. Hunter was um, to plead guilty to misdemeanor tax charges and participate in a pretrial diversion program to avoid felony gun possession charges. In exchange, Hunter was to receive broad immunity from future charges, including potential charges related to foreign influence peddling that congressional Republicans have now alleged. That deal fell apart in the court earlier this month after U.S. District Court Judge um, challenged the uh, broad immunity provision as unprecedented. Specifically, Hunter Biden would have pled guilty to not paying taxes on $1.5 million in income between 2017 and 2018 and entered into a separate deferred prosecution agreement for illegally possessing a gun. Well, Clark filed a motion earlier this week arguing that prosecutors must honor the offer of a pretrial diversion program on the guns charge as valid and binding, On Friday, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced the appointment of U.S. Attorney David Weiss as special counsel. That has become quite controversial among critics. Uh, They've also pointed out that Weiss's appointment is unusual, given that special counsels are typically drawn from outside the government to ensure independence and impartiality. Some have gone so far as to suggest his appointment is actually illegal. We'll continue to follow the story. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the second hour, a conversation with Aaron Burke, pastor of Radiant Church in the Tampa Bay area. His book is titled Unfair Advantage, Seven Keys from the Life of Joseph for Transforming Any Obstacle into an Opportunity. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. We'll also look at the aftermath of the Maui fires and what the church is doing uh, in that area. Well, Governor Kim Reynolds is expected to resume her conversations with the Republican presidential candidates uh, today as she uh, sits down with Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson for fair side chats, as they're called, at the Iowa State Fair. Reaching out to Iowans at the State Fair in the crucial early voting state in the presidential nominating calendar has long been a must-stop for White House hopefuls of both major political parties. But this year, the GOP candidates have another avenue to connect with voters as they're interviewed by the popular Republican governor who was convincingly re-elected to a second term last November. Reynolds said, I can hopefully draw a large crowd and maybe get more people in front of each one of the candidates, so they can hear their message and their vision and answer questions that are on their Iowans' minds. 
They, uh, they're very knowledgeable about the issues. They're certainly not afraid to ask tough questions, she said, of the Hawkeye State voters at the state fair this past weekend. Well, the Republican presidential candidates can't say enough nice things about Reynolds. All of the GOP White House hopefuls who are visiting the fair are sitting down with the uh, governor and joining her to tour the fairgrounds and flip pork chops, all except former President Donald Trump. Trump, the commanding frontrunner for the GOP 2024 nomination as he Makes his third straight presidential run, kept his distance from the governor as he briefly toured through the fairgrounds on Saturday. The former president um, earlier this summer potentially irked that Reynolds was uh, hosting other candidates as they stopped in Iowa, criticized the governor for staying neutral in the race for the GOP presidential nomination race. Reynolds uh, pledged to stay neutral in the presidential race. Uh, It's in line with previous Iowa governors. Iowa's all-Republican congressional delegation is also staying neutral as the large field of 2024 contenders descends on their state. The governor joined Trump in March in Davenport as the former president made his first stop in Iowa as a 2024 candidate. Reynolds didn't join Trump when he returned to the state in early June and again this month. Los Angeles Times columnist George Skelton endorsed the idea that Vice President Kamala Harris replace Democratic California Senator Dianne Feinstein in the Senate because she's been a drag on the president's reelection campaign, he wrote. President Biden has a problem. So does Vice President Kamala Harris. Senator Dianne Feinstein is a problem, he writes. There's a solution for all of this, he began. Biden's problem is Harris. She's a burden, a drag on his reelection prospects. Feinstein could resign from the Senate and Governor Gavin Newsom could appoint Harris to replace her. Biden then could find a more popular running mate, one more acceptable to voters as a potential successor, he continued. Well, Skelton, he noted that the idea came from a reader via email, but endorsed it as a great idea. In addition to Harris, a former California U.S. senator herself being called a drag on Biden politically, Feinstein has become a liability in some Democratic circles due to her advanced age and reported mental acuity issues. I have no doubt that the current vice president would uh, reject any notion that she would be demoted, if you will, to a U.S. senator from which she ascended before her um, appointment. Well, the Biden campaign ducked out of a recent MSNBC appearance to avoid questions about the president's embattled son, according to a new report. In response to the breaking news that a special counsel has been appointed in the investigation, the campaign didn't want any questions about it, according to The New York Times. The Biden campaign canceled a scheduled Friday afternoon appearance on MSNBC for its campaign manager, Julie Chavez Rodriguez, after the special counsel announcement to avoid facing a litany of questions about the president's son, according to um, those familiar with the issue the Times reported over the weekend. The anecdote came as part of a broader story that reflected Democrats appearing un. Uh, concern, however, about the um, develop uh, developments in the younger Biden's case, pointing in part to the multiple indictments gripping Republican frontrunner Donald Trump. Polling, Democrats noted, has uh, suggested that swing voters aren't attuned to the various Hunter Biden controversies. And of course, the legacy media isn't reporting on them. Recent elections, including the Ohio referendum this past week, have shown that the abortion rights issue is powering Democratic victories. And Democrats believe 'er ne'er-do-well family members do not cause transitive harm to relatives who are running for president. The Times reported MSNBC, the left leaning cable arm of NBC News, is the current employer of 
President Biden's first press secretary, Jen Psaki, who hosted the weekend show Inside. Her replacement, Corrine Jean-Pierre, was an MSNBC political analyst before transitioning back to politics. And the network is often a friendly landing spot for pro-Biden talking points. So most likely would have been a very softball interview. The Washington Post editorial board admitted Hunter Biden shouldn't get special treatment on Saturday after saying it appeared he did in his initial plea agreement, adding President Biden's behavior isn't squeaky clean either, although doesn't really matter. Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed the uh, investigators a special counsel in the investigation on Friday, prompting the liberal newspaper, which cast aspersions along with other legacy media outlets on the infamous Biden laptop to speak up. This was the right move. It should encourage Americans that the process will be independent and transparent and therefore that it is more likely to be fair, the Post's editorial board wrote. However, this was the investigator that stalled uh, this effort for five years and maybe uh, may have been appointed in violation of the Constitution. Well, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has a new director, Dr. Dr. Mandy Cohen. Her predecessor, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, acknowledged CDC was responsible for some pretty dramatic, pretty public mistakes from testing to data to communications during the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, unfortunately, nothing indicates that Dr. Cohen has diagnosed the cause, much less prescribed the cure for what ails the agency. Well, Dr. Cohen proposes restoring trust in the CDC by improving communications and bringing the best evidence to the public. Now, this misses the fundamental problem. A new study for the Paragon Health Institute and the Competitive Enterprise Institute reviewed the history, organization, and pandemic performance of the Centers for Disease Control. It identified the source of the CDC's pandemic failures as mission creep, abetted by the lack of congressional authorization for the agency. The CDC has grown into a large, diffuse agency with priorities that are far afield from its core mission of preventing and controlling communicable disease outbreaks. This lack of focus left the agency unprepared for the pandemic and distracted it from an effective response. Congress normally exercises its spending power through a two-step process of authorization and appropriation. Well, according to the Congressional Research Service, Authorization measures establish, continue, or modify an agency's program or activity and set forth the duties and functions of an agency or program, its organizational structure, and its responsibilities. Appropriations measures then provide funding. Well, unlike other significant agencies, Congress has never authorized the CDC. No single enabling statute defines the agency's goals, its power, or its structure. It was created by executive action back in 1946 as the Communicable Disease Center and has since expanded in the executive branch largely through unauthorized congressional appropriations. With a lack of direct congressional authorization, aggressive efforts by the CDC's early directors to expand the agency's purview and the willingness to execute branch officials... Uh, to delegate authority to CDC led to a rapid and haphazard expansion of the agency's responsibilities beyond its original purpose. Well, the CDC's priorities now include the climate crisis, reducing racial disparities in public health, social detriments of health, and the growing crisis of domestic, sexual, and gun violence. Just a small fraction of CDC resources is devoted to communicable disease threats. Centers for Disease Control, unprepared to do its primary function. Well, Consumers Research Executive Director Will Hild 
uh, says BlackRock CEO Larry Fink and BlackRock are the poster children of ESG. The more the dirty little secrets about environmental, social and governance investment schemes are revealed, the faster even its most strident proponents run away from it. Well, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, the poster CEO for uh, ESG investing, recently said he'll no longer be using the term ESG and that he's ashamed to be part of the debate on the issue. There should be little wonder that those involved in the nefarious ESG scheme are running for cover. The influential German-owned proxy advisory firm ISS appears to be the latest to distance itself from ESG. With the assistance of ISS, investment firm giants like BlackRock, uh, State Street and Vanguard have been leveraging their massive investment portfolios, which include state pension funds and hardworking Americans retirement nest eggs to force companies to advance radical political goals. It's certain, uh, certainly egregious that these firms are using their investors assets without the investors knowledge or consent to pursue an activist ESG agenda with which many of those investors vehemently disagree. But it's even more important that these ESG investing schemes diminish returns for state pension and retirement funds. And that crosses a line, compelling state treasurers and financial officers to step in and exercise their fiduciary responsibilities. In fact, several state treasurers and financial officers have been examining the role of proxy advisor service in the context of shareholder proposals that in recent years have been dominated by ESG items, some of which appear to be ideological efforts to undermine companies at their very foundations, reducing profits and investor returns. Combined, ISS rather, and Glass-Lewis control 97% of all proxy advisory business. In a recent joint letter to Proxy Advisory Services, 22 state treasurers and financial officers representing 19 states expressed concern over proxy advisors' secretive vote recommendations and the effects of those influential recommendations in whole or in part on factors other than enhancing or protecting shareholder value. Well, interesting to see what will happen in the days ahead. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show coming up in our second hour. Aaron Burke, pastor of Radiant Church in the Tampa Bay area. Unfair advantage. Seven keys from the life of Joseph for transforming any obstacle into an opportunity. That's coming up in the second hour. Well, three conservatives have been ousted from a Washington state school board over a February 2022 decision to make face masks optional for students, despite Democrat Governor Jay Inslee's statewide mandate requiring them. Well, members Carrie Williams, Audra Bird, and Simi Bird, the last of whom is eyeing the governor's seat in 2024, were recalled after an extended effort to shake up the board. The leaders of the recall said, we will fix the mistake that was the election. Well, this was never about just a mask mandate, he said. It was a combination of change and accountability that we brought forward that the progressives within our district did not like. With the support of the teachers union and other progressive advocacy groups, they brought tens of thousands of dollars to a school board recall during an off-year primary where we had our supporters come out in numbers and support us, but the masses of conservatives who are our voter base did not turn out, Bird said. He was serving 
Uh, he has served in the U.S. Marine Corps and was the first ever African-American elected to the district's board. He's running for governor as a Republican with a goal to remove divisive labels from discussions and foster hope among people who want to see civility and unity return to politics. Well, despite the support he's received, the odds seem stacked against him. In the district recall, parents who supported Byrd and his uh, fellow conservative board members were up against spending that far outpaced their own. On a broader scale, he says state Republicans have remained completely silent throughout the ordeal, showing no support for him or his fellow board members under attack from progressives. The successful recall does not prevent Williams, the only one of the three recalled members who appears on the ballot for the 2024 term from running again. The fires have caused an estimated $5.5 billion in Hawaii. They're based, uh, bracing for the death toll to increase, but the damage is significant. Wall Street Journal reports that Maui officials increased the death toll to at least 96 following the catastrophic wildfires on the island as they continue the painstaking search for victims in the rubble. Residents braced for a higher death toll in what is already America's deadliest wildfire event in over a century as searchers find more human remains in the charred town of Lahaina. Across Maui, officials urged residents to share DNA samples to help identify the lost. Firefighters have made progress against the three largest wildfires, but the deadly fire in hard-hit Lahaina, covering more than 2,000 acres, was only 85% contained uh, earlier this week. The United States will uh, send um, uh, $200 million for security assistance to Ukraine in addition to funds that have already uh, been sent. It's a package um, providing Kiev with another round of munitions and tactical vehicles for use in the fight against Russia. The latest package places total U.S. security assistance to Ukraine at roughly $43 billion since Russia invaded in February, meaning the remaining funds for Ukrainian forces is fast approaching their limit. The Biden administration unveiled the critical assistance for Ukraine in the midst of a major counteroffensive operation. The package includes more munitions for advanced weapon systems coveted by Ukraine, including high mobility artillery rocket systems and Patriot missile defense systems. The United States has just um, sent the $200 million in aid uh, to Ukraine and Maui doesn't even get a comment. He's uh, since broken his silence and did comment briefly earlier today u.s gas prices soar to nearly four dollars per gallon pump prices are creeping toward four dollars a gallon nationally i'd love to pay just four dollars a gallon here but the national average for regular gasoline is three dollars and 85 cents a gallon on monday according to AAA. that's the highest level since october 19th and comes just weeks ahead of labor day weekend when millions of americans will hit the road One presumes. Well, the summer spike in gas prices has eased with the cost of drivers moving just gradually higher. More recently, the national average is up by two cents over the past week. Still, gas prices have climbed by 28 cents over the past month and 32 cents since the 4th of July as a result of higher oil prices caused by Russia and Saudi Arabia cutting supply and extreme heat sidelining some U.S. refineries. Gas prices are now hitting an eight-month high, with the national average creeping closer to that high. Gas was, by the way, $2.39 when Biden took office. That's on average. Uh, Who else misses cheap gas and a thriving economy? I'll leave that as a rhetorical question. 
President Biden earmarked a $6 billion ransom for Iran to be used for humanitarian purposes only, we're told. Iran is recognized as the world's number one leader in state-sponsored terrorism and declared openly, we will be the ones who decide how this money is spent. Meanwhile, the administration seems prepared to hand over the $6 billion of to Iran's ruling mullahs in return for five Americans it has uh, taken prisoner. Uh, to get precisely this kind of ransom. Iran keeps raising the price for its hostage-taking, and the U.S. keeps paying it. Federal employees in San Francisco have been mandated to work remotely amid extensive crime. The employees um, at the federal building, which is located at an intersection notorious for open-air drug transactions, were instructed to work from home amid the uh, crime in the city. In early August, the Department of Health and Human Services advised hundreds of workers in San Francisco to work remotely until further notice due to crime concerns. Outside, one of uh, San Francisco's worst open-air drug markets rages and dealers and addicts doing business in broad daylight daily. Addicts often hang out and use drugs on the federal building's concrete benches, the uh, Chronicle reported. In June, two men were charged with attempting to deal drugs in full view of the federal building's surveillance cameras. The U.S. attorney said in a press release, one of the men was in possession of a gun when he was arrested and may have fired a gun at someone near the building months earlier, the U.S. attorney's office said. Student loan forgiveness is set to begin for thousands of borrowers. On Monday, student loan companies are set to begin discharging the debt of 804,000 borrowers who have qualified rather for $39 billion in debt relief, part of the first batch of borrowers affected by the Education Department's one-time account adjustment for income-driven repayment plans. Well, the department announced on the 14th of last month that borrowers who had made the required 20 to 25 years of qualifying payments on income-driven repayment plans would be notified of their debt cancellation and that 30 days later, their services would begin discharging their loans. Administration officials were unable to provide an exact timeline for how many borrowers would receive their relief and when, citing the complication, uh, the complicated nature of reviewing each individual loan, but said the process would be complete within weeks. There's also the potential for lawsuits to interrupt the debt discharges, though a recent suit filed by the um, New Civil Liberties Alliance on behalf of the Cato Institute and the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, arguing that the Department of Education is going beyond its authority, was recently dismissed by a U.S. District Court judge in Michigan. For the time being, though, the Department of Education is moving forward with the plan to discharge debt for borrowers who qualify. Again, we'll continue to follow that developing story. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour and in our second hour, a conversation with a pastor of Radiant Church in Tampa Bay, Aaron Burke, author of Unfair Advantage. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, a conversation with Dr. or rather Pastor Aaron Burke from Radiant Church in Tampa Bay. His book is titled Unfair Advantage, Seven Keys from the Life of Joseph for Transforming Any Obstacle into an Opportunity. We'll also take a look at how Christians are faring on Maui following the fire there and the struggles they are currently facing. Well, year two of Taliban control in Afghanistan um, marks the uh, uh, the second anniversary was just last week of the Taliban's return to power in Afghanistan. And all thanks to the disastrous retreat and surrender there. Predictably, the Taliban took the occasion to celebrate their conquest of Kabul, 
A Taliban spokesman stated, we would like to congratulate the Mujahideen, a holy warrior nation of Afghanistan, and ask them to thank Almighty Allah for this great victory. He added, now that overall security is ensured in this country, the entire territory of the country is managed under a single leadership, an Islamic system is in place, and everything is explained from the angle of Sharia. And while the Taliban has regained control of Afghanistan, they've not received official recognition of their rule from the United Nations. Uh, we're sure that's um, that's most likely coming And for women in the country, they have lost all of the freedoms they enjoyed under the previous regime. Well, uh, since Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville took his stand against Joe Biden's unconstitutional effort to ensure abortion access to U.S. military members on the taxpayer's dime, three branches of the U.S. military now lack Senate-confirmed leaders. Tuberville's uh, refusal to consent to a unanimous Senate greenlighting of the general and flag officer nominations has resulted in a backlog of officer appointment. Well, Democrats claim that Tuberville's stubbornness is posing a threat to military readiness, though he's rejected that charge. Contrary to false reporting, no jobs are going unfilled while the hold is in place, his spokesman observed. Instead, highly experienced acting officials are serving in these roles. Uh, The Democrats-controlled Senate could vote on individual officer nominations, but Dems refuse to because they reason it would take too long. Well, the Biden administration, he reasons, could reverse course on its abortion policy, revert back to the following the law. Uh, That would resolve the impasse immediately. So the standoff has continued. Well, Harvard is telling students to apply for food stamps, even with an endowment worth Roughly $53 billion, making Harvard University the wealthiest university in the world. The school's solution to graduate students complaining that their $40,000 salary isn't uh, enough to live off of is um, to go apply for food stamps. The Harvard Graduate Student Union proposed increasing the starting salary of graduate students at the Ivy League school to $20,000, or rather by $20,000, arguing that $60,000 annually should be the bare minimum The HGSU's proposal came in response to flyers that Harvard had sent to graduate students stating, fuel your body and stock your pantry. Did you know that grad students may qualify for assistance paying for food and groceries? The HGSU observed that roughly 30 percent of the school's graduate students were from foreign countries and therefore did not qualify for SNAP. Maybe this is why Harvard is loath to end its practice of race-based admissions. The school is worried it will have fewer minority graduate students it can take advantage of. Just a thought. A Georgia grand jury has indicted President Trump over the state's 2020 election results. Sam Bankman-Fried siphoned $100 million of uh, stolen uh, money, cryptocurrency, from customers into U.S. politics to influence crypto legislation. And organized crime or gangs could be behind the $300,000 L.A. flash mob, police say. From defund the police to send in the troops, anti-cop Democrats are now begging the National Guard to stop crime in their cities. And the blindside subject, Michael Orr, says his adoption by the Tui family was a lie and he was cut out of money from the movie. He didn't receive a single cent. And Snow White's remarks, the actress Rachel Zegler slamming Disney's 1937 classic is um, an ongoing market nightmare for Disney. Just another example of uh, how difficult they're finding it these days. Well, on this day in history, 1483, the Sistine Chapel is consecrated by Pope Sixtus IV. 
1945, in a pre-recorded radio address, Japan's Emperor Hirohito announces that his country has accepted terms of surrender for ending World War II. 1947, the Indian Independence Bill creates the two independent states of India and Pakistan. 1961, as workers began constructing a Berlin Wall made of concrete, East German soldier Konrad Schumann he leaps to freedom over a tangle of barbed wire in a scene captured in a famous photograph. 1969, the Woodstock Music and Art Fair opens in Bethel, New York. 1971, President Richard Nixon announces a 90-day freeze on wages, prices, and rents. 1995, the Justice Department agrees to pay $3.1 million to white separatist Randy Weaver and his family to settle their claims over the killing of Weaver's wife and son during the 1992 siege by federal agents at Ruby Ridge, Idaho. 1998, a car bomb kills 29 people in Omag, Northern Ireland, the deadliest act of violence in more than 30 years of the Troubles. 2018, President Trump revokes the security clearance of former CIA Director John Brennan. 2019, Israeli officials decide to block U.S. Representatives Rashida Tlaib, the Democrat from Michigan, and Ilhan Omar from Minnesota from entering the country as part of a planned visit, a reversal that comes amid pressure from President Trump and concerns about their support for boycotts of Israel. While Moody's downgraded the credit ratings of 10 banks, Moody's uh, downgraded the small to mid-sized banks, citing growing financial risks and strains that could erode their profitability. The credit rating agency also warned that it's watching some of the nation's biggest lenders for potential downgrades. The actions come after a banking crisis that started in March with a sudden collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, once the nation's 16th largest bank, when depositors grew fearful of the bank's solvency and made a classic bank run. Signature Bank and First Republic Bank soon followed, leading to more concerns about the banking industry's stability. And it continues. A woman who described herself as a black supremacist and made numerous racist posts on social media no longer works at Mesquite Independent School District and will no longer be able to work for the district ever again. The former first grade teacher made multiple unhinged posts on X, formerly known as Twitter, about how she vehemently disapproved of her sister dating a white man. In one video, she said she will do everything she can to sabotage the relationship, even going as far as to ask her boyfriend to kill her sister's boyfriend. Needless to say, she's not welcome back in the school district. Coming up, Pastor Aaron Burke from Radiant Church, Unfair Advantage, Seven Keys from the Life of Joseph, for transforming an obstacle into an opportunity. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest has written a book, The Unfair Advantage. I love that phrase. It implies something. We'll talk about it. Seven keys from the life of Joseph for transforming any obstacle into an opportunity. The categorically unfair events in our lives that derail our dreams. That's what the book is about. They often fuel our passion and propel our vision, something we may fail to see. Well, in the book, The Unfair Advantage, my next guest explains how responding to tragedies appropriately makes all the difference. It doesn't just happen. You have to respond correctly. Well, my guest is uh, Pastor Aaron Burke. He is the lead pastor of Radiant Church, which he and his wife Katie started in 2013 after selling everything and moving in faith to a new city. Radiant Church now has eight campuses throughout the Tampa Bay community. His passion 
are building the local church and helping Christians live into God's uh, potential. Uh, in addition to pastoring at Radiant, he regularly speaks at churches and conferences across the country. He also works um, uh, heavily with planting churches and developing leaders in South Asia, in Sri Lanka and India. His work, uh, he his work rather with uh, equipping leaders includes uh, his Made for More Leadership podcast and partnering with the Association of Related Churches and the Church Multiplication Network to train church planters. He and his wife have been married since 2010. They have five beautiful children. They love to travel, spend time with family, and do CrossFit, which is pretty impressive in and of itself. Well, joining us to talk about the book, The Unfair Advantage, Aaron Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. It's an honor to be with you. You know, this is such an amazing name, and it's so fitting to what you are writing about in the life of Joseph, the unfair advantage. Can you just give us a brief description of what that means? Because I think it's very compelling, uh, and it draws me in to want to learn more. Well, the whole idea came from a few years back. I was uh, praying over a girl in our church and just talking about how unfair her life had been. And during that moment, I felt like the Lord told me it was unfair, but it was for her advantage. And that's where I wrote down the phrase, looked at the life of Joseph, but also looked at just my life, different stories, and realized that God has a way of using all of the unfair things in life for the greater purposes if we learn how to leverage them correctly. So in the book, I give seven unfair advantages that everybody goes through and what our proper response should be during difficult seasons so that it could turn out for the good. One of my least favorite phrases is, everything happens for a reason. And the presumption is, right. it happened and it's going to end up to my advantage, regardless of what I do or don't do. And what you're suggesting is a, what the scriptures teach us about unfair um, advantages, that when we respond in the way that God calls us to, then we are going to experience that advantage. Absolutely. I've seen uh, two different groups of people go through the exact same tragedy. Let's say it's a loss of a child or the marriage falls apart or it's a diagnosis they never expected. Two people can go through the same thing. One can come out of it, even though it's a bad scenario, one can come out of it better. They can come out of it closer to their purpose. They can come out of it living on mission and making an impact. And the other person can come out of it bitter, frustrated, um, resentful, and I realized how we act in the middle of our trials really dictates what the outcome is on the other side. God can turn it around for the good, but we've got to do our part. And that's what I kind of try to break down in this book. Yeah, absolutely. When you look at the life of Joseph, which is a great example of what you're talking about, you, you read the early um, part of his, his life. He's a very young boy, and he is bragging to his brothers about a dream that he's having, or at least he's retelling the dream. And some might suggest, well, he provoked his brothers, which led ultimately to his being uh, sold into slavery. For many of us, parts of our story um, are parts that we're ashamed of. Uh, does the origin of the story... Uh, do the details of how we got to this unfair situation make the difference in terms of whether or not there can ultimately be an advantage? Absolutely. I mean, you got to think with his story, he goes about pretty much bragging with his brothers, and that's a terrible way to start this thing out. But at the same time, the dream was from God, mm -hmm. and he had a decision during that moment when his brothers basically hated him for it. Even his father, who loved him so much, favored him above the rest of the brothers, told him that they despised him because of this dream. 
But the Bible goes to say, and Joseph dreamed again. So what he did is, despite what people thought, he went back to, okay, well, what did God say in the first place? And that's always a decision we have to make in our life to go, are we going to go with what God says? Are we going to go with the opinions of those people around us who um, don't know what the dream is and don't know even what God had told us? So even though Joseph probably didn't handle it correctly at the first place, at least he dreamed again and didn't stop and he didn't quit. Absolutely. Now, the subtitle of your book is Seven Keys from the Life of Joseph for Transforming Any Obstacle into an Opportunity. How is the book intended to be read? I know one of the things that you suggested that you you meet with others and, and go through the study with other people. How How is it structured for folks to do a study? Well, what I did is I told people, I said, listen, at the end of each chapter, there's going to be discussion questions, way that we can talk it out. Because the seven unfair advantages are seven things that everybody has to deal with. And because of that, it's relatable. I mean, we talk about the fact of being discouraged in your dreams. We talk about the fact of dealing with rejection. Everybody deals with rejection. And I would challenge the listener, when you get the book, um, go through it with some friends, but be vulnerable. You know, we try to impress people with our strengths, but really our impact in people's lives is when we share our weaknesses. So when are those times that we really were dealing with rejection and how can we respond to that rejection with good? When are those times that we've been overworked and underpaid and people didn't see the value in us, which Joseph had that happen when he sold into slavery. Mm -hmm. But how did we respond? How are we good stewards of the season, even if we weren't given what we deserved in that moment? So the vulnerability and community is always the best way to go through the book. And I, I think it'll really help church groups or small groups or house churches, or whatever groups take the book and go through it. I, I designed it with the idea we do it in community. Now, an unfair advantage, as we mentioned, you trace the life of Joseph and he experienced one unfair event after another, after another. We tend to, in Western um, Christianity to assume that if we are faced with a challenge, that it's evidence that God is no longer for us, that he has abandoned us. And we, we tend to underestimate the value of the experience that he has allowed in our life. What do you say to the one who has withdrawn from God because of difficult circumstances, imagining that I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. Life should be fairly easy for me. Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with the bad, the fact that we really don't have a good grasp on who God is. The more we know God's character, the more we're able to look at who he is. As he's a good God. He's a God that genuinely cares. He's a God that genuinely loves us. Then we can embrace the fact that if he brought even bad situations around us, then he will use them for the good eventually in our lives. I, I just think it's an important note that there's one phrase that I found, you know, eight to 10 times in the life of Joseph And it's the fact that despite the difficult situation, the phrase is, the Lord was with him. And I want to encourage listeners, Mm. if you feel like people have abandoned you, people have let you down, um, nobody's with you, you've kind of been overlooked, I think you're going to be able to look back on your life and realize the Lord was with you. This is not a time for you to pull back from your relationship with God. It's a time to lean into it. And even in those lonely seasons, the Bible says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He reveals himself to those who are who are distraught in their spirit. And I think that God can actually be even more known during difficult seasons if you lean in, open up your heart and embrace the fact that, man, he wants to be close to us during this time. So 
I get the fact that some people have run away, but I would say you're doing the wrong thing. When life falls apart, run to God and watch what he can do. Amen. One of the phrases that you coin is we live life forward, but we understand life backward. Explain what you mean by that. I mean that there's a time in your life when God is in control, when you are living life for God, when you go through difficult seasons, you might not understand it, but one day you will. And we all ultimately know as believers that that one day will be in heaven. But I actually have seen it in my life where I can look back on years and years and years and even decades now and realize and go, oh, it makes sense now. Mm. Um, I, was, I, I had this moment. I got saved at 16 years old. But then at 17 years old, I got expelled from high school. It was a terrible scenario. Long story short is that one expulsion from high school brought me into a low of life. I took online classes um, for my senior year and did college credits instead of going to my school that I got expelled from. And from that, I look back on it, and it's because of that moment I graduated in three years instead of four years. And on the day of my graduation, I got invited to be a missionary in Sri Lanka on another part of the world. And I looked at it and go, oh, the difficult season had to happen. Because if I didn't go through it, I would have never been able to walk into what God had for me. So one day you will understand why you're going through the pain. Maybe it's one day you're going to be sharing your story with somebody who's going through exactly what you went through. And you're able to minister to them and you're going to go, oh, I understand it had to happen. And by the way, I want to remind our listeners that you've been involved with planting churches and developing leaders in Sri Lanka. Uh, so that's a very strategic moment in your your life and your walk with Christ. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the book, The Unfair Advantage. We'll make sure we find out where you can get a copy. Seven Keys from the Life of Joseph for Transforming an Obstacle into an Opportunity. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Pastor Aaron Burke. He is the lead pastor of Radiant Church, which he and his wife Katie started back in 2013 after selling everything and moving in faith to a new city. The church now has eight campuses throughout the Tampa Bay community. He is the author of The Unfair Advantage, Seven Keys from the Life of Joseph for Transforming an Obstacle into an Opportunity. And as I mentioned earlier, I love the title, The Unfair Advantage, because it seems a bit like an oxymoron, but it is so absolutely true when we look at the life of Joseph and we reflect on the challenges that we face as followers of Jesus in our time as well. You begin um, with the uh, with the discouraged dreamer uh, in Genesis 37, 5. Joseph had Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. And the story sort of begins there. This boy is singled out by God. He's given this dream. He doesn't necessarily talk about it in a way that um, that is uh, favorable. But God had a purpose and a plan in this young man's life. One might question that because of what happens next. Where do you go in the study? Well, I think it's interesting that when we get a dream from God, we think it's going to lead us immediately into our destiny, and it's all going to be amazing. But that's not the scriptures, and that's not life. The reality is, is God puts a seed inside of us, a dream inside of us, but then he puts us on a path, and that path is difficult at times. I tell people it includes a thing that nobody likes to talk about, which is pain. And pain is hard, and pain is terrible, and we've all experienced it. But in that moment, 
God brings us in a season where we experience pain because pain is always going to be part of the story that he wants to tell through our life. We're broken here on this earth, but it's through pain that we're able to really fulfill the purpose God has for us. And that's what Joseph did. He went through painful years, not just years, 13 years of pain. And through that 13 years of pain, he was able to walk into the destiny that God had for him. But it took a lot of a lot of work that God had to do in him and through him mm-hmm. during that time. And really a lot of trusting in the timing of God, that God's timing is perfect. There were choices that Joseph had to make in the midst of what were a series of very difficult circumstances. He could have gone one direction or the other. He chose to honor God in the way he responded maybe not fully understanding that at some point that dream he had as a young boy would be fulfilled in ways that far exceeded his imagination or even what would be conceived of as possible. Absolutely. And you know, that's how God always works. God always works things out better than we could imagine, but it's also going to be on a path that is more difficult than we can imagine. And it's probably going to take longer than we can imagine. So all of those things combined have to bring us to the place of going, are we okay trusting God and are we okay living God's way during the process? And that's mm-hmm. what we see in Joseph's life is that he had to make that decision, um, simple decisions. I mean, the decision of Potiphar's wife mm-hmm. was a big one. And I outlined it in the book as an unfair advantage. He had to choose integrity being a person of character, when really it would have been easier for him to just live by his flesh. He chose a harder path that was unfair, but God honored it and brought it towards and used it as an advantage in his life. And And it's the same throughout the rest of our lives. In choosing to honor God, he rejected the notion of bitterness. Uh, We would look at his story and say, he's entitled to be bitter. He's entitled to to lash out because of what he's experienced. And yet he rejected bitterness and chose to follow what he understood and knew about God and walk in integrity, as you as you pointed out. Yeah, bitterness is something that every person is going to have to fight against because people are mean and life is hard. And so bitterness is a choice for us to not let the offense of the world go into our heart. And I tell people, you can live in an offended world without being an offended person. And that's our decision as a believer that we've got to turn to choose to forgive like Christ did. And I find it interesting that Christ example of forgiveness on the cross. And I write about in the book is the fact that he forgave while the people were crucifying Mm -hmm. him while they were in, while he was in pain, he didn't wait for resurrection Sunday to go, Hey, by the way, I forgive everybody. It's all okay. While they were hurting him, he forgave, he released the bitterness, and that's the decision that we all have to make. And we today have the advantage of the indwelling Holy Spirit to give us the power to do what in our flesh we cannot. And the fact that we have the Spirit of God living inside of us and that makes us more than conquerors to achieve what God's called us to achieve. We're talking about the book, The Unfair Advantage, Seven Keys from the Life of Joseph to Transforming Any Obstacle into an Opportunity in which there are seven chapters and seven uh, unfair advantages, if you will, uh, that you focus on. One of them is the fact that that Joseph was rejected by the very ones that he uh, would have expected, that we expect to love us the most, and that was by his his brothers, his own family members. Uh, the, The title of that chapter is The Redirected 
reject. Um, how did he go about that, and what can we learn from his example in uh, dealing with his brothers and having been rejected? You know, what is interesting is we have unbelievable details of Joseph's life. Mm-hmm. Um, we have details in multiple chapters, and yet not one time do we see Joseph holding an offense or a grudge against his brothers, despite what they did. So in the middle of that, we see him get, you know, his brothers threw him into a pit. From the pit, they're sold into slavery. From there, he's now forgotten for a decade plus, and then his brothers have to come crawling back to ask this, ask him for help. And yet at the same time, he walked in forgiveness but he also realized something I want people to understand. And it's really the whole purpose of that chapter is to realize that many times in life, re- rejection from whatever you're trying to get is God's way of redirecting you to something better. Because he could have gotten the praise and the approval of his brothers. And if he got that, he would have never accept- walked in the path that God had for him, which is to be second in command over all of Egypt. It took rejection to get him to his destiny. And many times in your life, it's going to take some rejection, some closed doors, you get fired, that person lets you down, the relationship ends, and little do you know, it's God's way of redirecting your life to even something better. Another chapter I want to focus on, and we're sort of skipping around a little bit for the sake of listeners, um, he covers seven uh, areas. Each one is essential to telling Joseph's story and to help us to understand uh, the transformational opportunities that we have uh, through any obstacle that we might face. The chapter on the forgotten faithful, God gives him uh, interpretation of a dream and the expectation is I'm going to interpret this dream and they promise, oh yes, when we are released, we're going to turn around and tell the Pharaoh what you've done. And, you know, there's hope that, you know, my long ordeal is going to end, but he is, he becomes the forgotten faithful uh, when one of them is killed and the other, well, he just forgets. Yeah, and isn't that the story of all of our lives where someone's promised something where we thought we would be further along and we find ourselves in a moment where we just feel forgotten and overlooked. And what I say in that chapter and the idea of that chapter is to encourage people that though you may be forgotten by man, you have not been forgotten by God. And it's in the prison season that God forges us. It's in the waiting that he develops us. And he's creating something in us before he's going to do something great through us. And we see it in the life of Joseph. It was necessary for him to wait. And for your listeners Mm -hmm. today, just so they know, it is necessary for you to wait because God is building something deep in us before he does it through us. So you might feel forgotten, but God hasn't forgotten you. Your last chapter on an unfair advantage, number seven, is titled The Limited Leader. Now, this is the culmination of everything Joseph has gone through, and yet you title it The Limited Leader. What perspective do you take on this season of Joseph's life where he has ultimately an encounter with his brothers, having been given a tremendous authority? You know, I think it's very interesting. Joseph gets to the pinnacle of the dream, and in the pinnacle of the dream, He's second in command over all of Egypt, but yet he's given only one job. And I thought that, I've never Hmm. realized that in the story, that he is given second in command, but Pharaoh says the only thing you can do is prepare for this famine. And I thought that's unfair. He's worked his whole life. He's believed his whole life for this time of prominence and position, but yet he's only able to focus on one thing. And then I caught it. That's an unfair advantage. God wants his people to be focused. And the ability that we have to make an impact 
is directly connected to how focused we are. So mm-hmm. we're limited as leaders. We only have so much time. We only have so much attention. We only have so much money. So how we focus, it really matters. And if you learn to focus well, you can learn to be faithful with God's put in front of you and you can make an impact, but you realize you can't do any, everything But you can do something for God, and that's what Joseph realized with his life. Yeah, the one thing that God's asking you to do, do that with gusto and with faithfulness. Once again, the book is titled The Unfair Advantage. Where can our listeners uh, get a copy? It's it's, uh, published by um, Nelson Books. Where can they get it? Yeah, they can get anywhere books are sold. So um, in bookstores at Barnes & Noble, it is on Amazon. It is online. Uh, you can go to Ehrenberg.com, and there's a lot of different opportunities for you to, to buy it there and to get different resources. But love for the listeners to let me know how it um, impacts their life and how it's helping them. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for the book. I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. You are so welcome. Again, Aaron Book, uh, Aaron Burke, rather, the author of The Unfair Advantage. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I know for those of you who have traveled to Maui, News of the fires there have been devastating. It just breaks your heart, not only to consider the property damage, which, of course, is very serious, but the loss of life um, is certainly overwhelming as well. Lahaina was one of Dan and my favorite places on Maui. We've only been there twice, and Lahaina was always just that warm, smaller community that you felt like you could be a part of. I appreciated that Christianity Today reminded us that Uh, Lahaina was once the capital of the Hawaiian kingdom. It was the home of Maui's first church and seminary as well. And they write that in the aftermath of the worst disaster in memory in their um, island, the deadliest fire in U.S. history, Maui's Christians are gathering. Uh, They gathered on Sunday morning to offer prayers, to continue to coordinate relief efforts and to mourn the loss around them. These are their neighbors, their friends, and family members. At Grace Bible Church in Maui, Pastor Jonathan Asato, he likened the destruction to the death of a loved one. When you look at that town and the memories that they've had there, it's not just home, he said, with tears in his eyes. It's part of our culture. It's part of our island. It's home. Well, days before, his church had sent supplies by boat to Lahaina, the former capital of the Hawaiian kingdom. It was a landmark in 200-year missionary history in Maui and the site that bore the the brunt of the brush fires that devastated the west side of the island. So it has something of a legacy of faith. Having witnessed the scorched cars, the embers uh, on Front Street, the smoke dissipating from the more than 2,000 buildings burned, The pastor asked his congregation to stand up to face in the direction of Lahaina as he repeated, we speak life and light to you in Jesus name. Well, in the town of Lahaina, local Christians grapple with the widespread damage. And while the leaders of the Baptist church were amazed to learn that their church was still standing, despite everything around it, literally in ashes, all but two of their church families lost their homes. I would estimate that over half the residents of our communities lost their homes and possessions The big question is, where will these people live? It will take years to rebuild. This is from Pastor Barry Campbell on his Facebook page on Sunday. Another big issue is jobs. If the hotels and results, uh, resorts rather, are closed down, where will locals work? Fellow believers in Maui have been on the front lines to help caring for the thousands of victims of the disaster that as of Monday killed 96 people and could cost as much as $5 billion to rebuild. They have transformed churches into donation centers. They've cooked hundreds of hot meals. 
They've delivered generators, gas, and food across land and water. In central Maui, a Seventh-day Adventist church provided emergency shelter for 40 displaced Lahaina residents. The church says it sees its work as also offering spiritual rejuvenation to families in the midst of displacement and trauma. At the Friday Welcome Program, one member started singing Adventist children's songs, which instantly brought joy to the faces of the kids who had been evacuated from their homes. Uh, The announcement uh, from its conference said... Soon the adults joined in and the moment became a much needed source of joy and comfort for all. We will continue providing moments of joy for as long as they are with us. And while Christians from all over have offered donations and prayers, it's locals who understand the scope and significance of the loss concentrated around the place where Christianity first came to Maui. It's an historic town with a lot of cultural and historical significance for the native Hawaiian people. The pastor of um, community church there speaking to the Baptist press, who compared the devastation to a war zone. A lot of people talk about it as a tourist town, but it really is very important to the native Hawaiian community. This is home. When uh, the queen married to the ruler who united the Hawaiian islands, uh, they moved to Lahaina in 1823. She invited two American missionaries who brought the faith to the island. Americans William Richards and Charles Stewart taught scripture uh, to the queen and prayed with her. And she converted shortly before her death later that year. After Honolulu, Lahaina is home to the second most complete complex of historic Hawaiian Christian sites in one place to be found in all of Hawaii. Chris Cook, an expert on Hawaiian missionary history. The loss is all but the uh, uh, site leaves a major gap in the statewide census of intact Hawaiian missionary era structures, 1820 to 1863. Lahaina's historic uh, um, Wehola Church just celebrated its 200th anniversary. The church dates back to a service that Richards and Stewart's organized in 1823. Buried in its graveyard are members of Hawaii's royalty, including the Queen. Previously known as Wayne's Church, Wayne meaning moving water in Hawaiian, Uh, Over the years, its building has been damaged or destroyed four other times by strong winds, by fires, and the church hall was engulfed in flames in last week's blaze. So the structure is not unfamiliar with heartache and destruction. Buildings can be replaced, even though our church has an awful lot of history, uh, says one church lay minister. Our strength lies in our people who are just as important, if not more. Well, last week's fires also reached Maui's oldest house, the Baldwin House, a former compound where American missionaries lived in the 1800s, including physician Dwight Baldwin. He had learned Hawaiian well enough to preach the gospel in the local language, and he credited, uh, is credited with quarantining and vaccinating Maui's residents to help control a smallpox outbreak in 1853. Lahaina's famous banyan tree also has a connection to the island's Christian history. The 60-foot tree it was planted in 1873 by William Owen Smith, the then sheriff of Maui and a child of American missionaries in honor of the 50th anniversary of the arrival of Protestant missionaries on the island. Smith later helped overthrow the Hawaiian kingdom's last monarch um, that Lahaina fires spared the town's high school, which was originally a seminary that housed Hawaii's first printing press. According to Cook, the school was the place where native Hawaiians wrote and published the first history of the islands in 1837. Well, ministries from the mainland have started to come alongside the island's local churches. Citizen Church, ABQ, and Albuquerque announced last week 
that its sister church in Maui would host disaster relief groups, Convoy of Hope and Mercy Chefs. It's what the Christian community does. Samaritan's Purse said that it had already sent over chaplains and that in the coming days it would fly over supplies and coordinate volunteer teams to help people search for valuable uh, valuables and for mementos. World Vision is not shipping supplies, but rather distributing funds through a community church of the Nazarene in the upcountry area. This region of the land, about 30 miles east of Lahaina, has struggled with its own wildfire situation in the past week. Churches damaged by the fire are still working to minister to each other in the ashes. Um, another minister, Richard Murray and his wife, uh, lost their home in the fire. The church website also mentioned that they had lost all their live streaming equipment. And in a request for donations, it noted that the post office in Lahaina, where our post office box was located, has also burned down to the ground. So we're using a temporary address for now to receive donations and tithes. A Hawaiian news report, Instagram Reel, it captured Christians praising God through song and dance at a Word of Life uh, Kuhulani church. Around a quarter of the congregation is from Lahaina and the surrounding areas. The senior pastor uh, Instagram stories shared numerous GoFundMe links for families affected by the fire. My mindset is to continue to push and press forward to what is ahead, the positive I'm not going to dwell on what's happening now and what I see, one unnamed attendee of the service said. I'm not in denial of what I see, but I know what is ahead of us is life and life more abundantly. And this from people who lost friends and family members and neighbors, certainly their homes and businesses. The prospects for their future are grim in that their places of employment, um, their places of rest have largely been destroyed. But it does, uh, does point to the resiliency of the body of Christ rising from the ashes to praise and worship, to serve their neighbors, to love one another, and to look forward to what, uh, what is to come. Life more abundantly. Well, we are just about out of time. I do want to tell you what's coming up. I'm off tomorrow, but on Thursday, we've got an announcement to make about an expansion here on KPDQ. So if you have the opportunity to join us tomorrow, Mike Lee will be filling in for me. I'm taking a vacation day to spend some time with my mom at the zoo. Well, weather permitting. So we'll uh, we'll announce some things on Thursday. So I hope you can join us. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.